0: All right, good to see all of you today. Um, Welcome, and uh, we are just taking these next couple of weeks uh, in an Easter series, taking a break from our Genesis series. Today is Palm Sunday, and then we've got Good Friday, uh, our service on Friday morning, and then Easter Sunday. So, really, just taking an opportunity to look at the journey of Jesus in that last week as he went to the cross and then came out of the grave Sunday morning. Oh, sorry, spoiler alert, Jesus uh, is alive. But um, So we're just taking today, today and next week to do that, then we'll head back into Genesis after Easter. Um, but today's Palm Sunday. It's been mentioned a couple times. Palm Sunday is full of symbols. It's full of symbols. Uh, so let's talk about symbols for a minute as we get into it. You can open up to John chapter 12, because we'll get there eventually. Let's talk about symbols. Symbols are all over our world. They represent something. Symbols have meanings. When you see a symbol, it's supposed to make you think a certain way, to give meaning, give information without any words, just through recognizing, just through visuals. If I give a simple example, if I hold up this finger like this, what does this finger represent? one way Jesus, all right, we're getting into it there, one, it's just the number one, Any, anybody who's listening online, I'm just using my index finger, if you're not watching this, okay, it's just my index finger, uh, it's just the number one, okay, it's a symbol, or it can mean, wait a minute, if you're talking to your kids, right, wait a minute, uh, or if I just simply go like this, and put it in front of my lips, that's a whole other symbol, it just, Shh, be quiet, quiet, okay, and of course, you've already thought it. If I use a different finger on my hand, it means something completely different. And again, those listening online, I didn't actually do it. I want to keep my job. Um, so, but symbols represent all kinds of things. And, and a lot of you are wearing symbols today, just on your body, on your clothing. You'll have a logo of a brand or a company. You might not be able to see it. I don't like wearing big, bold symbols on my clothes. But I have a little one today. It's a little eagle here. I think this is an American eagle shirt that I got secondhand but uh, so if you know if you know what that little eagle means it represents a brand and you might think certain things about me or the clothes that I'm wearing some of you might be wearing a, a Nike swoosh or you might be wearing a Levi's red tag or your, your um, water bottle might say the word Yeti on it these are logos symbols of, of symbols of brands and brands are very intentional about building meaning into those symbols when you see a certain logo, you're supposed to think a certain way, maybe even think a certain way about the person wearing that symbol. Now, who can tell me, put it on the screen, what this symbol represents? Anybody? Bluetooth. You all knew right away because you have been conditioned by the Bluetooth brand to know what their symbol means. And, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm not making any comments. They didn't sponsor this sermon today, uh, but... But we all see that, and and Bluetooth technology is mostly a mystery to me. I know what it does, but not necessarily how it works. I know that if I'm close to you and you've got your phone on discoverable mode, I can use Bluetooth technology to send you a picture or something, or I can connect my wireless headphones to my phone to listen to music. Somehow Bluetooth makes that possible without actually connecting a wire. I don't know if it's magic or what it is, but it works. So Bluetooth is a brand, but it's also a kind of technology that they developed in order to make, uh, make technology work in a new and helpful way. Now, a majority of you, like you, you all called out, you all called out, you know what this symbol means. You probably know basically what Bluetooth does, even if you don't know how it does it. But most people probably don't know that there's a little bit more to the story about this symbol. Put up the next slide. The Bluetooth symbol is actually made up of the Nordic letter H and the Nordic letter B. Don't worry, I'm not trying to expose Bluetooth as being like a satanic brand or something here, okay? I know people do this. This is actually real. You can find it on their website. Uh, Bluetooth technology was actually named after a king of the Danes, a king of the Vikings, named Harald Bluetooth. The Nordic letter H and the Nordic letter B represents Harald Bluetooth. He was a Viking leader who united the Viking clans, became king of Denmark, uh, and it was was a very revolutionary time in in their history. And uh, Harald, he got the nickname Bluetooth. Vikings would give each other nicknames based on something you accomplished or maybe a physical trait that you had. So Harald probably got punched in the mouth, had a dead tooth that had a blue tinge to it, and that was his name, all right? Uh, so, hey, there's the guy with the blue tooth, Harald. And so that's how Vikings did their thing. But Harald was a king of the Vikings, united the clans, and uh, he's well known, and this technology was named after him. But it's it's so full of meaning because uh, when they actually came up with the name for their, their technology, it, originally that it was just a placeholder name. They were like, well, we'll call it Bluetooth for now until marketing comes up with something cooler. But then it stuck, and it became this global brand. But Harald united the Viking clans and became king with the Bluetooth company, and their vision was to use technology to unite the world. And so in Harald's name, who united the Viking clans, they wanted to unite the world with technology. We're going to come back to Harald in a bit, and about Vikings, so keep that idea of Vikings and getting punched in the mouth in your brain as we get into the text of good, or uh, pardon me, of Palm Sunday, because I will make it fit in a moment. But Palm Sunday, in the Christian calendar, is the Sunday before Easter, and it commemorates the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the last time he rode into Jerusalem, because five days later, he was hanging on the cross. Palm Sunday, similarly, is full of Symbols, full of visuals that have significant meaning. Symbols that didn't need an explanation because their presence in the scene was enough for the people who were there and the first readers of this story. There's actually a lot of moments in Jesus' ministry where instead of teaching a parable or doing a specific, you know, sermon on something, he just acted something out. And what he did was the sermon itself. What he did told people what he was about and what he was going to do, kind of like an enacted parable, and Palm Sunday is one of those actions. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, include a Palm Sunday narrative in them, which shows us how important the early Christians saw this day. And for context here, if you're in John chapter 12, um, before this, you would have read about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. He was in Bethany, front. he went there because Lazarus was his best buddy. He had died a few days earlier, Jesus came, Lazarus had been buried. He said, hey, Lazarus, buddy, get out of that grave. He did. It was a big deal. People were amazed, and they started to follow him as he moved to Jerusalem, and it created this scene for Palm Sunday. So John chapter 12, starting in verse 9, says this. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plan to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. This is how deluded the, the religious leaders of this time were. They were uh, so, so deluded about who Jesus was, they wanted to kill him. But then when Jesus does the miracle of raising from someone from the dead, they wanted to re-kill that guy because that didn't look good for their way of thinking. And so this is their whole plot to kill Jesus, but there's all this tension that's building as Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem. So after this, he starts his journey. He's coming from the east of the city into Jerusalem. Many people from Bethany come with him in this procession of pilgrims, but people also come out from Jerusalem to see him. Now, this is during the Passover festival, which I'll explain more in a minute. The Passover festival was a big deal for the Jewish people, and they would have all kinds of pilgrims come from all over the area, all over uh, Israel, to come to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate. So, if Jerusalem's normal population was about fifty thousand during Passover, it was about one hundred and twenty thousand. Huge numbers of people coming to celebrate together. So, let's keep reading in verse nineteen, or uh, from twelve to nineteen. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Let's talk about the symbols in this passage. Symbol number one was Passover itself. The celebration of Passover. This is why so many people were packed in Jerusalem when Jesus arrived. Passover was the celebration of when the Hebrews were liberated from slavery in Egypt. The big, bad Egyptian empire had enslaved God's people for 400 years, but God rescued them. Moses came, the plagues were sent, and the people left, you know, let my people go, or the Red Sea parting, all that. Passover launched that whole liberation movement, and so here they are remembering Passover. But they're no longer free like they were after they left Egypt. They're once again under the thumb of a big, bad empire, Rome. So consider what the scene would have been like and what the tensions would be like. They've got this whole celebration that they remember being liberated and God freed them from a big bad empire and now they're still under the thumb of another one. If you think of maybe what this would be like you know, in the United States, consider um, there's, there's an uh, Amazon TV show called The Man in the High Castle. And it, the premise of the show is that Germany won World War II And they actually crossed the Atlantic and actually conquered continental USA. And so now the United States is dealing with, you know, these German overlords and they're part of the new Reich and and they're dealing with that. Imagine what the 4th of July would have been like every year. The American people remembering their independence day while being under the, the conquerors from Germany. That's the kind of tension that would have been built there. Or if you want to bring this closer to home, a little bit less comfortable of a way to understand it. Many indigenous Canadians remind us on Canada Day that there were people here in Canada before it, was, it became a nation, and those people have been oppressed in many ways. So Canada Day kind of becomes uh, a reminder of colonial oppression for many. And so this is the sentiment. This is what's bubbling up in Jerusalem on this occasion when Jesus walks in and this celebration is happening. People are longing for liberty, and for a king to come and save them. Symbol number two is the Roman entry. So what's not mentioned in the text, but certainly happened at this time, Jesus came in from the east side of town, but from the west side of town, there would have been a different parade. Jesus and his band of pilgrims came in with palm branches and celebrations in the east, but on the west, there would have been another parade coming through. Pontius Pilate would have shown up sometime that week. As you know, when Jesus is later arrested, he eventually goes up in front of Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the governor of the province of Judea, which is basically the area where Jewish people lived, where Jerusalem was. And he was responsible to Caesar to keep peace in that region. So during major festivals like Passover, Pilate would have come to Jerusalem. He normally resided in Caesarea. but He would have come from the west. Into Jerusalem, he would have shown up on a war horse. He would have shown up with hundreds, maybe, I don't know how many, maybe a couple thousand extra soldiers just to make sure there was peace in Jerusalem during the time when people wanted to celebrate their liberty. So he would have had his own parade that mirrored Jesus' parade from the other side of town. And this parade would have been a symbol of Roman power. It would have been a symbol to say, I know you guys are celebrating your liberty, but if you try to gain liberty, you're going to get crushed. I'm here to show my power and to show my authority in your midst. So this is actually one of the reasons why the Pharisees were worried about what Jesus was doing. They were worried that they'd lose some of the religious freedoms the Romans had allowed them to have if Jesus was coming in and stirring up the people toward a desire for liberty. Symbol number three, the palm branches. This is where we get the name Palm Sunday, because people came out from Jerusalem, and they were waving palm branches uh, as Jesus rode in. Verse 12 and 13 says, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. This wasn't random. This wasn't just because there were branches there to grab, and they could, you know, wave them in front of Jesus to keep him cool. This was very symbolic. 150 years earlier, during uh, the Maccabean revolt, where there was a a sense of liberty after they had revolted against some other oppressors, the rebels minted new coins on them that had the symbol of the palm branch on it, which was a symbol of liberty. They had gained liberty over their oppressors, and the palm branch was that symbol. Similarly, if in Canada we we had another nation oppressing us and controlling us, maybe we'd wave uh, um, maple leaves around as a symbol that we want to be a free nation again. So they waved these palm branches around, and they shouted the word, Hosanna! Hosanna! Which is a word that means, save us. Save us, Jesus. They're referencing Psalm 118, 20 to 25. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So palm branches weren't just like a cute addition. These were very symbolic and very subversive when it came to Roman power in the region. Symbol number four, the donkey. In contrast to Pilate's entry in the west, Jesus enters Jerusalem in the east, not on a war horse. He enters on a donkey. But we're told that it's not just a donkey. It's actually the foal of a donkey, a young donkey, a small donkey. I'm not sure if Jesus intended this to be a humorous scene, but I feel like it might have been. Because this would have been not a full-grown donkey to hold a full-grown man. It would have been a young, small donkey. Jesus' feet probably would have been dragging on the ground. It would have been kind of silly. Now, if Pilate was coming in on a war horse from the other side, the war horse would have been the equivalent of a modern-day tank. Jesus was riding in on the equivalent of a modern day tricycle. It's this strange contrast, but it was not unintentional. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 prophesied about this image, said, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The symbol of the donkey in Zechariah was the complete opposite to the symbol of the war horse. Pilate was coming in prepared for a fight, ready to shed blood in order to achieve victory. Whereas the symbol of the donkey was a message of peace. The machines of war are not necessary today because we are at peace in Jesus' reign. The king riding into town isn't riding into war. He's bringing peace. He's not coming to kill and shed the blood of his enemies. He's coming to bring peace in a very different way. So you have coming into Jerusalem two very different symbolic parades. One a symbol of power and violence and force. The other a symbol of humility and peace. And these two parades are going to come head to head by the end of the week. And in many ways, these two parades continue to march today. Because in our world, we still have people that claim that the best way to have peace is to conquer and shed blood and to destroy those that disagree with you. In fact, Rome was known for what was called the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. Because within the boundaries of the Roman Empire, there was peace. You could travel the roads fairly safely, and they were pretty safe from invading armies, because the Roman legions kept that peace. But the way Rome achieved its peace was through centuries of bloodshed, and warfare, and violence. Anybody who disagreed with Rome, anybody who had something Rome wanted, anybody who was subversive in any way, was crushed. And that was the way Rome brought peace. Rome had peace, yes, but only at the expense of everyone else's peace. But Jesus came to bring peace in a very different fashion. By the end of the week, he showed us his way of bringing peace by allowing Rome's power to do violence to him by bearing the brunt of Rome's power, by being crucified on a Roman cross. A symbol of Roman power that actually eventually became a symbol of liberty from the powers of this world and the powers of the world unseen. You know, there's always been a Rome. Big theme in the Bible. We'll see it again when we get back into Genesis. Before there was Rome, there was Greece, there was Persia, Syria, Babylon, mighty empires that slaughtered and killed and forged kingdoms. And even since Rome, there's been plenty more would-be Rome's. The theme all throughout Scripture. The cycle of violence continues over and over again as people rely on earthly powers and as people rely on their own wisdom to bring about the peace they desire. But Jesus comes to offer a peace that goes far beyond geopolitical peace. In fact, Jesus offers a peace that we can possess even when we don't have circumstances that are peaceful. The kind of peace the Bible calls a peace that transcends understanding because why should you be at peace when the world around you is chaos? Because Jesus' peace is bigger than the chaos of the world. But peace comes not from the sword of Caesar. It comes through the cross of Christ. And that peace not only can reside in our hearts, but it can change lives. It can change relationships. It can change families. It can build communities and cities and nations. It can absolutely change everything. I told you I'd get back to old Viking King Harald Bluetooth. A lot of what we know about Vikings, you know, most people just comes from movies and and kind of stories that we read, and a lot of it's just kind of Fables and tales. Like I learned that Vikings never even had horns on their helmets. Isn't that sad? They didn't even have horns. Every Viking I've ever seen on TV has horns on their helmets. They didn't do that. And the word Viking isn't what they were actually called, that's actually what they did. When they went and pillaged and killed and murdered and stole from people, that was called Viking. And they just had that name attached to them. But we do know some very fascinating things about the Vikings. Foremost among that is that they had a dramatic conversion to Christianity. Dramatic. They forewent the pagan gods of Odin and Thor, and they started to worship Jesus. The Vikings were an incredibly violent people. I mean, if you want to learn about some interesting ways to torture people, you can can Google that. Very violent. One of the reasons for their violence was part of their judicial system required uh, the use of blood feuds. So basically, if someone had wronged your family, then the way the judicial system worked was you now, you and your family had a right to go wrong their family. So basically, you know, my family could be sitting, having Thanksgiving dinner. I know I'm crossing eras here. We could be sitting, having a dinner, or a birthday party, and, you know, family from across the street could crash through our windows and slaughter us all because of something my great-great-grandpa did 150 years ago. And that was part of the system that was within their culture, and it was to maintain the honor of your name and your family and your clan. Violence begat violence begat violence, because if I had any living relatives after that, they'd go after those neighbors and destroy them. And the violence and slaughter and cycle would continue. It was a matter of honor. So if you look at history and you look at the conversion of the Vikings to Christianity, you'll you'll read a bunch of theories as to why they did it. You'll read theories about it was politically advantageous or there was pressure or it helped them with trade with uh, nations to the south. But there's another theory that's very, very interesting. And uh, I first heard it through Tom Holland, who's a historian. Um, Not the same Tom Holland who plays Spider-Man in the Marvel movies. It's a different Tom Holland. Also British, though. Uh, and he's not a Christian, but he writes a lot about the influence of Christianity in the world. And uh, in his podcast, The Rest is History, which is super interesting, um, he had this whole series on the Vikings, and if you want to find it, it's fascinating. But he talked a lot about King Harald Bluetooth, and what happened to the Vikings as they became Christians. Because it was Harald who eventually united the clans and declared, we are now a Christian people. It's one of the ways he consolidated his reign, but it wasn't just about power for Harald. Harald knew he had to unite the clans, and he knew to do so that he needed to bring peace. The cycle of violence couldn't continue. Honor dictated blood feuds and revenge. The worst thing you could do as a Viking was lose your honor. So what was Harald to do? Well, when he was introduced to Jesus, he learned that there was a better way to bring peace while preserving your honor. The most honorable thing to do as a Christian was not to slaughter your enemies or b- get revenge, but Heraldo learned the most honorable thing to do as a Christian came from the mouth of Jesus himself, the one who rode into Jerusalem on the donkey rather than the war horse to be slaughtered by his enemies. And Jesus said this in Luke six twenty seven to 28. To you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. The most honorable thing to do as a follower of Jesus was not to slay your enemies, but to love them and to forgive them and to bless them. So Harald introduced a different way for the Vikings to keep their honor, but to end the cycle of violence. Didn't happen overnight. They were still Vikings. But they had started walking in a different parade and things began to change. See, today we, too, can choose to join the parade of Pilate, to continue the ways of the world, bringing peace in ways that we think it will come, but only leads to cycles of violence and death and disconnection. Or we can choose to join the parade of pilgr- pilgrims following Jesus on the path to peace. Maybe you're in a time of decisions right now. You've got a couple of choices. A symbolic parade to join. Maybe you've doing, the way you've been doing things just isn't working. It's creating cycles that are unhealthy and unhelpful. Maybe you're in the wrong parade. Maybe you need to start following Jesus. The good news is it's never late. It's never too late go to the other side of town and join Jesus' parade. And you know, when the people came out to Jesus, they brought those palm branches out. And in some ways, there was nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, those palm branches were a symbol of the people putting expectations on Jesus. They saw Jesus as the kind of king that was right in their own eyes. They said, Jesus, come save us the way we think you should save us. Come lead our armies Come defeat Rome with violence and power. That's not what Jesus came to do. And some of those same people who were shouting Hosanna later in the week were shouting crucify him. And so instead of palm branches, I want to present Jesus with a different symbol today. And we're going to praise him in a moment, but would you stand with me even now? Instead of coming with our hands full of something where we show Jesus and say, we want you to save us like this. Another important symbol in the Bible is simply just raising our hands in surrender to Jesus. And as we ask him to save us, as we say Hosanna to him today, we can say, Jesus, save us the way you want to save us. Be the king that you came to be and lead us in the path to peace. So as I pray and before the band leads us, would you just raise your hands with me if you want to be a follower of Jesus today? And let's pray together. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Lord, save us. Lord, save us. Come, Lord Jesus. We want to surrender to you, Jesus, our coming King. And we ask you to save us. Save us from the parades we walk in that are just ways of this world that lead to cycles of unhealth or violence or disconnection. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would lead us in the way of peace, that you would lead us in the way of life, that you would lead us to eternity. We surrender to you, our King Jesus, and ask you to save us, Lord. Save us from our sin. Save us from our folly. Save us from our wrongheadedness and our stubbornness, Lord God. Save us from our addictions. Save us from our addiction to power. Save us from our addiction to our own way of thinking we surrender to you and ask you to save. And even in this moment, church, would you just say those words, Hosanna, or save us. Save me, save me, Jesus. Save me, Jesus. Save me, Jesus. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. The song we're going to sing is from earlier in the service. I will make room for you. We want to make room for Jesus to be the king that Jesus wants to be as he comes into our town in the way He desires to come. We're making room so He can do it the way He wants to do. And it gets into the bridge. It says, you know, we've got this religion and tradition, and we see the world a certain way, but we need Him to even save us from that. Break down all those walls and to reveal Himself for who He truly is. So as we sing, in your heart, ask Him to save. And with your hands and with your whole self, surrender to Him, your King.